Thank you for listening to this week's message from Haven Baptist Church. Our prayer is that God would use what you are about to hear to help you grow into a totally committed follower of Jesus Christ. Seeing people saved is what we're going to talk about. And it is a wonderful blessing to see people saved for anyone who loves souls. It is a blessing for an evangelistic pastor or preacher. It is a blessing for an evangelistic Christian. It is a blessing for an evangelistic church to see people saved. And by the way, every preacher, every Christian, and every church ought to be evangelistic. What I mean is every Christian, every preacher, every church ought to work for, pray for, long for seeing people saved. See their souls saved, their lives changed, and their, their sins forgiven. And when you and I pray for someone and we witness for someone, it's a blessing to us individually. Unfortunately, it's something that we don't see enough of. Yet, being saved is absolutely essential for everyone. See, being saved is not for good people or it's not for the really, really, really bad people. Being saved is essential for all people. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, the apostles said this, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, now listen to these words, by which we must be saved. Some people say, you know, uh, you, you must die and you must pay taxes. Well, let me tell you, you must be saved if you're going to heaven. Today we're going to look at what the Lord laid on my heart from this text and what it means, to, what, what is required to see people saved? What is it going to take to see those people you want to see saved? To see those people around us that need to be saved? Those people in our families, those people in our workplaces, those people in our community. How, how are we going to see them saved? We're going to walk through this text, so keep your Bibles open. And uh, um, I'm going to pray for us that God would speak to us. And then we're going to read the passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 10. So let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you desire that none perish, but that all come to repentance. Thank you, Lord, that you desired for us to be saved. Every saved person here, you desired that they would be saved. And most likely, Lord, somebody else desired they would be saved. So help us, Father, today to be a people, a church that desire the saving of souls. And speak to us in this place today. And in this place, Lord, let us not let our religion get in the way, our past, uh, something we've done religiously, or the fact that we think we're good people. Father, in this place today, if there's one that needs to be saved, may today be the day of salvation. May we hear the gospel and may we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing that's required if people are going to be saved is a heartfelt desire. Heartfelt desire. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. We're just going to read verse 1 for now, but keep your Bibles open. Romans 10, 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Romans chapter 9 through 11 is the section in Romans where Paul is expressing his deep concern for the salvation of the nation Israel. It is one of the deepest passages of scripture. The 
theologically deep passage of scripture. And matter of fact, there's so much in it that churches have actually divided over this. Doctrines are, have, have risen out of Romans 9 through 11 over this debate about election and predestination and what God's doing with Israel and what God's doing with the Gentiles. But well, all that Paul knew, and he's going to talk about it. If you read it, he talks about that Israel will be saved, but they've, been, they've rejected Christ and they've been cut off. But aside of all that, Paul's great desire for them was that they be saved. Even though he knew what was going on at the present time, his heart longed to see those people saved. Now, Israel was his brothers, his countrymen according to the flesh, his ethnicity, his nationality. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, just look over in Romans 11.1. 1. Look there very quickly, just so you be clear of what he's talking about here. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's stating his, his credentials as an Israelite. He said, I'm a Jew. I, I, my nationality is Jewish. And he said, so I desire that my brethren would be saved. But that's a great word there, saved. We hear it all the time. What does it mean? What does the Bible mean when it says saved? It's a beautiful word. I love that word saved. I've never loved it more than I did until I got saved. And I love it even more this week. It's a great word. When we think about the word saved, many images come to mind. Often we think of someone in danger who's saved. Maybe someone who's rescued from a a perilous situation. Maybe a fire or maybe a car wreck or maybe a life-threatening situation where there's violence or there's death and someone is saved. And we always love to hear those stories. Well, that's the word the Bible uses. You know, the Bible uses the word, this word for to be saved means to be rescued. It pictures one who's been snatched from the flames. It pictures one who was in a perilous situation in any moment, life or death, and they were rescued and they were brought to safety. They were removed from harm. This is the idea. See, it means not the saving of your physical life. It means the saving of your soul. And every soul that is not saved is in a perilous situation all of the time. It means to have your sins forgiven and have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But it also says that the wages of those sins is death. That situation, your sin, the very wages of it, the result of it, the end result of sin is death. That's why there's a cross. Because the end result was death. And Jesus died, the Bible says, Christ died for our sins. But then he rose again on Easter Sunday to prove himself to be Lord of of all and King of kings. And when you and I repent... What does that mean? Repent. Well, it means to turn away from. It means to turn away from sin. It means to turn away from life without God. Life without. Listen, it means to turn away from the best that you are. So you might have the best that God has. See, some of us can't get saved. Not because we're that bad. We can't turn away from being as good as we think we are. There are going to be a lot of good people. Who don't make it to heaven because they can't repent of their own goodness. Their own righteousness. The Bible says your righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And if I told you exactly what that word meant, it would disgust you. This filthy rags, what he meant in the Old Testament, is disgusting. God says your righteousness before me is disgusting. 
When you repent, you turn away from your life without God, whatever reason it is. Maybe you're in a life of sin. Maybe you're in a life of rebellion. Maybe you just feel like you're too good to need to be saved. But the moment you turn away from that and you then can turn to him. See, turning away from bad stuff doesn't save you. What saves you is turning to the one who can save you. You turn from yourself, your sin, your unbelief, and you put your faith in Jesus. You believe on him. You are no longer condemned, and you are no longer under the judgment of sin. The Bible says in John 3, 16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we love that verse. It's a great verse. It's a great truth. If you don't know God this morning, I want you to know God loves you, and he wants you to be saved. He doesn't want you to perish. But a few verses later, Jesus said this. Listen to this. He who believes in him is not condemned. Praise the Lord. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know, every person who hasn't believed, I don't care what you think about them. I don't care if you love them. I don't care if they're the best friends you got in the world. If they're not saved, they're walking around under the condemnation of their own sin. They may not be living a horrible, terrible life. They're walking around. They have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And to be saved is to be delivered from the penalty and the condemnation of sin. And to be born again, to have a new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's greatest desire for Israel was that they be saved. Now I want you to think about this. His greatest desire for Israel was not that they be out from under Roman rule. When Paul wrote this, who was ruling the Jews? The Romans. Who crucified Jesus? The Romans. The Romans were brutal dictators at times. They, they slaughtered many, many hundreds of thousands of Jews. Some people believe there may have been millions of Jews that were killed on crosses. But Paul's greatest desire for them was not that they be delivered from Roman rule. Paul's greatest desire for them was not that they be prosperous. Not that they have freedom. But that they have their souls saved. What's your greatest desire for the people you love? See, some of us, our greatest desire is that our kids get ahead. Our greatest desire is they be successful. Now, they, be, they, may not, they might be a mile away from God. They might not be saved. They might not know God if they got hemmed up with him in a broom closet. But our greatest desire is they have a good life. Paul's greatest desire was they got right with God. Because if you have a good life and you die without Jesus... It was all worthless. Kind of like what we studied in Ecclesiastes this morning. You know what this passage tells us? That it often requires someone, some saved person, to desire the salvation of a lost person. Because the lost person doesn't desire it. Listen, you're waiting around for lost people to desire to be saved. They desire everything but salvation. Lost people desire pleasure, peace, and joy, and hope, and love, and contentment, and satisfaction. You remember when you were unsaved and you desired those things? I do. You know what you were were desiring? You were desiring what salvation brings without desiring salvation. See, people are desiring what God can do for them when he saves them but what he's oftentimes not going to do for them until he saves them. The best thing you can pray for somebody is that God will make them miserable until they repent. 
that God will not give them an inch of peace, a night of rest, whatever it takes for their soul to come to know God. And it takes Christian people to think this way. So Jesus desires the salvation of souls. The church must desire the salvation of souls. And and we need not a lukewarm desire for salvation. We need a hot heart, passionate desire for people to be delivered from sin and set free from the condemnation that it brings. The Apostle Paul had this, this, this phrase here in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire, my heart's passion is for them to be saved. In fact, if you want to think about two words to, to describe this heartfelt desire, one is passion. Matter of fact, look back at chapter 9. You have your Bibles open. Look back at chapter 9, verse 1. I like it when I hear those real Bibles turning. You can't hear those, pla- those electronic Bibles turning unless they accidentally play a video that you're looking at on Facebook while I'm preaching. And I pray if you are, that'll go off. We'll all know. Chapter 9, verse 1. Look, I, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now look at this. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. What does that mean? It means to be cut off from Christ. It's the same phrase as saying someone is cut off and cast into hell. That I myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and of whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. That means Christ was a Jew too, according to the flesh, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. What is he saying? He says, I have such a continual passion and such a sorrow for them that I would be willing to, be, to lose my salvation if it meant they could get saved. Now, Paul knew you couldn't do that. But that's how he longed for those people. Let me ask you, do we have a passion like that to see the people around us saved? Do we care about the people who are perishing in KCK? Who are perishing in Piper? Who are perishing in Baser? Who are perishing at work? Who are perishing at school? Who are perishing at the ball field? Who are perishing at Walmart? Who are perishing at the grocery store? Who are perishing at the pharmacy? Do we care about those people like that? Paul had this passion. Now, listen, some of them he knew personally. Obviously, but he didn't know the whole, the whole nation personally. He didn't know everybody. He said Israel. He didn't know every Israelite, but he knew they needed Jesus. And he prayed for them. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And if you know the history of the Salvation Army, the Salvation Army was this, that. An army about salvation. Long before they set up thrift shops and all this other stuff, they would go out in the streets and they would preach and they would preach and they would win souls and they would have services. And there's hundreds of thousands of people that have been saved through the ministry of the Salvation Army through the years. William Booth founded that. He said this, some men's passion is for gold. Some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame. My passion is for souls. May God give us that kind of passion for the souls of people. We have not because we ask not. That leads us to the second word, and that's the word prayer. Back in chapter 10, verse 1, we continue this verse. My heart's desire, this, my heart's passion and prayer. My heart's passionate prayer to God for Israel is that they be saved. He was praying for their salvation, for a work of God's grace to touch their heart, to convict them, to open their hearts, open their mind, that they might be, they might be saved, they might repent, they might believe. Let me ask you. Who are you praying for to be saved? 
Who are you praying for to be saved? We should pray for people by name. We give you these I-5 evangelism prayer cards. It's a little uh, way to witness. It gives you a plan. Identify, intercede, invest, invite, introduce. A little step-by-step plan. Who, who, do you have anybody on your list? We should pray for people specifically. There should be somebody we know. Listen, you know somebody that's lost. I'll guarantee you, you know somebody who's closer to you than you think that's lost. There's some people you cross paths with, I will guarantee you, probably regularly, if not weekly, at least once a month, you, you cross paths with some people that are lost. And if they don't show up to work tomorrow, they're not going to heaven. They died and didn't show up to work. You, you cross paths with some people. You go to school with some people. But what about our neighbors? And you should know some of them by name. Remember, we've talked about that. But you know, we should also be praying for the people in our city in general. When we pray for those prayer guides, that, that seek God for the city prayer guide this week, you know, if you're using it, and I'm telling you, you ought to get one just for, for your own personal growth in prayer. We're praying for the Americans and the Caribbean. Anybody ever prayed for Greenland before this morning? If you used a prayer guide, you did. What was I praying for Greenland? For God to make it green? No, I was praying for those souls on Greenland to be saved. What about Barbados? You ever pray for Barbados? You ever pray for Bermuda? I prayed for Bahamas one time because I was there. Just one time. My wife's still praying for it, but she wants to go back. So, but... We're praying for these people. We're praying for their souls. I, I, I mean, there's a whole lot going on. I could pray for them. God bless them. God do something good for them. Yeah, but you know what ultimately I'm praying for? I'm praying for the people of that region and that city and that nation to be saved. We've got to pray that God would touch hearts and allow us to see people saved. And, and even if he doesn't allow us to see all these people saved, and he won't, we're praying asking God to save them. Paul wasn't going to see every Israelite saved, but he certainly prayed for them. It's a heartfelt desire. The second thing that's required. So there must be a heartfelt desire and that is in the, that's in the heart of the saved. But there's a second thing I want you to see and that is a facing of reality. A facing of reality. Look at verse number two. And we're doing this the old-fashioned way. No screens. There's no PowerPoint. There's no outline. We're just having to listen like we had to do years ago. Remember that church like that? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Verse two. For I bear them witness... He's talking about Israel. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. There's a facing of reality when a person gets saved. Paul states that though the Israelites were religious, they had not faced the reality that they were not righteous in and of themselves. And they had rejected the righteousness of God. Now, he says they have a zeal for God. Now, by the way, listen, all false religions have a zeal for God. People will kill you in the name of religion. They'll burn down your churches in the name of religion. They'll persecute. They'll do all sorts of things. They'll hurt themselves in the name of religion. They have a zeal for God, but it's in ignorance. Many people act in ignorance. They have zeal without knowledge. And Paul says what they're trying to do is establish their own righteousness. Because they don't know that God has given us righteousness in Jesus Christ. 
They're trying to be able to establish a righteousness of their own. So when they stand before God, they can say to God, I did the best I could. This is what I did. And they believe that maybe, hopefully, it'll be enough. You know, most common people that you'll meet out on the street are just like that. They're not against church. Some would even claim to be Christians. But they're ignorant of the fact that they need the righteousness of God found only through faith in Jesus Christ. So when I talk to them and you talk to them, they will tell you that they're not perfect. They do the best they can. They're a good person. They haven't done anything all that bad. I've never done anything all that bad. I can't tell you. I've heard that, I've heard that hundreds of times. I haven't done anything all that bad. I, I try to do the best I can. I'm a good person and I think God would let me in. You know what they're doing? They're establishing a righteousness all their own. And when they stand before God, they think that they're going to be able to give that defense. Now, people do this in all sorts of ways. Some people do it through religion. Many people do. Some of these people will go to church. If they don't go to church, they will say, well, I did get baptized. I went through uh, the classes at church. I, I went through uh, catechism. I, I had my first communion. Uh, I was baptized. We went to vacation Bible school and I, and I went forward and I got baptized later on. But they're not counting on the righteousness of Christ because they're ignorant of God's righteousness. And many of them think they're okay. And they don't have a relationship with God any more after the fact of their baptism or of their class than they did before the fact. This week, I was visiting with my dad. We were in the hospital there. Me and my brother Jack, he came up from Florida. You know, Jack preached here last year. And he came up from Florida and and we met and we took care of him most of the week. And uh, one day we were there and two men came to visit him. A man named Bill who was a good friend of our families and my dad and his son-in-law, Tim. And Bill and Tim and my dad actually were members of the church that we used to go to that I was saved in. First Baptist Church, Hazel Green, Alabama. So several years back, it's been about 10 or 12 years now, I, I went back home one day and for a visit, my brother Chris told me that Tim was preaching. Well, Tim was a member of our church back there, but Tim hardly ever came. He would come for a month or two and he'd disappear for a year or two, or it seemed like, six, eight months. He'd be in and out. Now, Bill was a deacon in our church. He was the song leader back when we had song leaders. Now we have worship leaders and all that. We, we've, we've progressed. But he was the song leader. And so, but Tim would hardly ever come. He'd get in for a little while, he'd fall out for a long time, in and out. I'd pray for Tim. I didn't know anything. I just felt like he needed to draw close to the Lord. So I got to asking him. I asked him, Tim, tell me about when you got saved. Well, Tim said, 17 and a half years ago, I was about the same time I became your pastor. He said, my wife, and they had left our church, and he said she was going to a church with a friend at a revival meeting. We used to do those too. And he said, my wife, my wife on a Thursday night asked me to go. And he said, I, I didn't want to go. I, I, he put it off, but something just led me to go. I went, and he said, I, honestly, I was going to drop her off and have somebody else bring her home, and I was going to leave. He really thought he was going to get away. But he said, I just got there, and I thought, well, I'll just go on in. And he's been in church. He was a member of the church, been baptized. He said, but that night, for the first time in my life, I heard the word of God in a different way. And he said, all my life, I had spent my time looking at other people. 
I looked at this person in the church and that person in the choir and this person who did this and this person who didn't do that and this person was this and this person was that. But he said that night, all of a sudden, I looked at me and I realized that I was not right. God turned it around and I looked at me. Stopped looking at this person and that person. And Tim got to crying and talking about how he got saved. Well, they were sitting in that room right there Tim was at this side of the bed, and uh, Bill was over there, and my brother was right here. Jack, that was here and preached last year, he, he got saved when he was 18. He got baptized. And he'll tell you, he lived more for the devil after he got baptized than he ever did before. He lived like hell. And at 24 years old, God convicted him and showed him that all that stuff that he did was no good because he didn't know God. And he got saved. Both of them became preachers. A little while later, a pastor friend of ours came in the room. They had already left and Benny came into the room, Pastor Benny. He's a friend of ours. He's a friend of my dad's. He eats breakfast with my dad pretty regular. And I asked Benny, I'd never, I've known Benny for 20-something years, but I'd never talked to him. I just happened to ask Benny, Benny, we were talking about when we got saved. How'd you get saved? When'd you get saved? He said, well, he said in... We, they had a revival meeting at our church. I was 13 years old. Everybody was going forward, so I went forward. He said, we prayed, and I, I got baptized. He said, but I have no clue what I was doing. He said, but I live for the world. And at 23 years old, God convicted me that I wasn't saved, that I'd done some religious stuff. And at 23 years old, Benny got saved. Three church members that got saved and became preachers. Now, if you're a church member that gets saved today, you, I'm not telling you you're going to be a preacher. <laughs> but church members need to get saved too sometimes. By the way, my dad was a church member. See, Israel had to face the reality they had not submitted to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. These men, Jack and Tim and Benny, had come to the reality that they had not submitted to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they would have counted on their religion. They would have wanted to tell God, well, I was baptized. And I was a member of the church. But they were not different people. They had never been born again. They still lived for this world. They still lived for sin. They still lived for themselves until God confronted them with who they were in Christ and without Christ. And they came. Let me ask you, have you submitted to the righteousness of God in Christ? Saying, God, I have nothing to, to commend me to you. I just humble myself and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I receive Jesus and his righteousness. So there has to be a facing of reality. You have to face the reality that apart from Jesus, you're, you're nothing. You're less than nothing. The third thing, there must be a confession of faith. So when we, we pray and we believe we have a desire, then people face the reality that they're not right with God. Then they must confess faith. And that begins in verse 4. So look, look with me in your Bibles there, verse number 4. I'm going to keep preaching until I'm done. Y'all good? Good, here we go. Good, praise the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 4, look at this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, what he's saying there is, is that Christ ends this trying to live good enough to please God. 
Christ ends this. You stop trying to do enough stuff. He's the end of that. See, before that, man has religion. Before that, a person thinks, well, I've done enough. I've gone to church enough. I've been a good person. I I gave some money to the GoFundMe for this guy at work. I've done this. I've done that. I got a list of things I've done. Well, listen, God's got the list of all the stuff you've done. The stuff you don't want to talk about. So what happens is you come to Jesus and he's the end of that. He's the end of trying to be good enough. Because if we try to be good enough, guess what? We have to be really good. We have to keep it all. Every bit of it. We can't break any of it. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is from the law. This, this righteousness you would earn from the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. He quotes Leviticus eighteen five. What this is, is the man who does these things, he shall live his life by them completely and totally. Have you lived your life completely and totally by the Bible? Since you've been saved, have you lived your life completely and totally by the Bible? There are some honest folks here today. Amen. So if you set out to be good enough, you better be really, really, really good. And I was going to tell you, I love you, but you ain't that good. Y'all some of the best folks I know and you ain't that good. So he says, it's, it's not good enough. In fact, James chapter 2 verse 10 says this. He explains it this way. Whoever shall keep the whole all and yet stumble in one point is guilty of it all. So the man says, well, you know, I, I, I've never murdered anybody. I, I've, I've, never, I've never been an adulterer. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? You ever lied? Don't lie. So... You're guilty of it all. Listen, the judgment, the condemnation, there won't be any separate categories when you get to prison. There's no maximum security place in hell. Nobody's going in solitude in hell. You get into heaven or you're going to hell and that's it. This is what he says. You're guilty of it all. And so he tells them, listen, but, but, but he says this, I want you to get it. What, you're, what we're talking about is not some impossible thing for you. Look at verse 6. He's going to describe something that would be impossible. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. This is impossible. You're not going to go to heaven and bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You don't have to do any of that. What you have to do is believe the word that's near you. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. What is he saying? You don't have to do anything amazing. God's already done the amazing thing. What you have to do is believe in the one. You've heard it in the word that he died and rose again. And you have to believe in him and have faith because that word has been spoken to you. And when you do that, you can be saved. Now, when you, when, you, when you believe, what do you do? You've got to confess. Verse 9, look at this. You hear this. You hear this all the time at the end of the sermon, but here it is in context, that if you confess with your mouth, so here it is. Here's the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You pray, you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, you are the one who has the righteousness. I'm a sinner. I've justified myself. I've excused myself. I've made excuses for myself. I've said my situation has caused me to do this. I can't, I can't, I, I, could do, I can't do any better right now, but I'll do better. You know my heart, Lord, people say that. Listen, God does know our heart. 
And it's not as good as we think it is. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Back in the book of Genesis when he judged the world, you know what he said? God knew the thoughts and the intents of every man's heart that it was only evil continually. I'm, not, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to stand before God and beat my chest. Well, God knows my heart. That scares me to death. He says, you pray, you confess with your mouth. You make the good confession. Jesus, you are Lord. You have the righteousness. And you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You have faith that his resurrection proves that Jesus is Lord and he is the one who can forgive. You submit to Christ and his lordship and you believe in his resurrection. John MacArthur in his study Bible says this, Christ's resurrection was the supreme validation of his ministry. What's the difference between religions? People ask this. All those other religious people are dead and they have to stand before Jesus. Jesus rose again and he ascended back into heaven and every knee shall bow. Muhammad shall bow and Buddha shall bow and Confucius shall bow and anybody else is going to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord because he rose again. Belief in, it, belief in the resurrection is necessary for salvation because it proved that Christ is who he claimed to be and that the Father has accepted his sacrifice in the place of sinners. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Jesus is alive. He's alive this morning. He's more alive than you are. He's more alive than anyone. He's at the right hand of the Father and God has accepted what he did on the cross for the payment for our sins. We confess, but we also believe. Look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes under righteousness. Now notice that. He, he doesn't say you work under righteousness, you live under righteousness, you earn under righteousness, you get baptized under righteousness, you do religious stuff under righteousness. No, you believe unto righteousness. Let me tell you, when you die, what you're going to need more than anything is righteousness. All the money you have, you don't need it. All the clothes, all the houses... You don't even need your family when you die. You need righteousness. And the only way to get it is to believe in Jesus. Confess unto salvation. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, people sometimes think that salvation is this long process. Here's how I got saved. I said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am a sinner. Please forgive me. I prayed. I bowed my knee that night, and I prayed a prayer of faith. And I didn't know enough about God. I'm telling you, I didn't, know, I, I didn't know enough about God. I didn't know anything. But I knew I was a sinner. And I just heard he was a savior. And I prayed and asked him. Confession with the mouth. And what happens when you do that? Verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You ever been ashamed of yourself? I've been ashamed of myself sometimes so terribly, so greatly. But I know this. When I stand before him, because I have believed unto Jesus, I will not be ashamed. I will not be condemned. I will not have all of my sins brought up and all of my failures because the blood of Jesus has washed them away. Every sin, that judgment will be exposed. Our unrighteousness will be revealed. Our inability to save ourselves will be, uh, be our condemnation if we die without Christ. What a great thought. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
You may be in a place right now where if, you, if someone knew what you were doing, you'd be ashamed. Well, there is someone who knows. You may be in a place right now that you know that you're living in a way that you have been taught not to live. You know deep in your heart it's not right, but you've allowed yourself to get there. And when you come to him, he'll forgive you and change you and he won't put you to shame. Instead, he says, come to me. Verse 12, look at this. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Jew are the religious, the Greeks are the irreligious. For the same Lord over all of this, the same Lord over all is rich, rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's rich. If you're religious this morning, he'll be rich to you. You're irreligious this morning, he'll be rich to you when you call on him. You're a church member this morning, you're just like these people. You're an unsaved church member, he won't condemn you. Nobody does that on purpose. Those men I told you about, they thought they were doing the right thing. They just didn't know God. But God was gracious and patient and revealed it to them. And they called on the name of the Lord. And they found salvation. He won't condemn you. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord. The Bible says that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Those who've ignored God. Those who've forgotten God. Those who've cursed God. Those who've hated God. Whosoever calls on his name. Because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Praise be to the God of our salvation. Have you made the confession of faith? You know, I'm surprised how many people, and some of these guys that talked about their testimony, they never made a confession of salvation. They told someone they were coming forward. Someone took them and said, all right, we'll get you baptized. But when they made a confession of faith in Christ from their heart with, with the mouth confession is brought, made into salvation they were saved the confession of faith have you made it there's the last thing and that is there's a hearing of the word how can we confess unless we hear look at verse 14 how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed and how shall they believe in whom they've not heard this makes sense doesn't it how can you confess if you hadn't believed? See, that's why some people never confessed because they really haven't believed. I, I've witnessed to people. I ask them about, you know, uh, how they, are they, would they go to heaven when they die? Yeah, why? Well, I got baptized. Uh, I'm a good person. What are they doing? They're confessing what they're trusting in. I've never had one tell me that told me Oh, I believe in Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins. I've never had one that, that, that told me that, that I was worried. Well, maybe you need to get saved. But I have had those who tell me, well, I got baptized and, 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 and we've done this and we've done that. You know what I do with those people? I witness to them. I witness to them. Well, but, but they got baptized. There'd be a lot of folks that got wet that didn't make it to heaven. There were three men right there I just told you about that came preachers. They were church members for years and years. They finally got right with God. How shall, they, how shall they believe unless they hear? Now look at the last part. Now this is going to scare some of y'all. And how shall they hear without a preacher? You talk, Well, there you go, preacher. You got a job to do. Well, listen. That word preacher is the same word in the, the, the Greek New Testament word for evangelist. And it's not talking about a traveling evangelist. It's talking about someone who will tell them. A proclaimer. 
It doesn't have the idea of someone standing in a pulpit is necessarily someone standing on the street, someone in an office, someone in a home, someone in a hospital, in an emergency room that says, listen, you're not going to be here much longer. That's what my brother told my dad. Someone who says, anybody can do that. All of us can do that. And all of us must learn to do that. They must call and they must believe so they can call and they must hear so they can believe. To witness and to preach is for those who have been sent. Verse 15, and how shall they preach? How shall they witness unless they've been sent, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, who bring glad tidings of good things. What he's saying is uh, God sent his people out to tell others. You and I have been sent to tell them. Verse 16, but, but have not all obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? You ever feel that way? You've witnessed and you've talked. And we wonder, I preach sometimes Sunday after Sunday on the gospel. And nobody even scratches their nose, much less gets saved. We're still to go and tell. Why? Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. This progression, somebody prays and believes and has a desire to see people saved. If you're not saved today here, I'm telling you, my heart's desire for you is that you be saved. I'll help you in any way I can. This church will help you in any way we can. But the greatest thing for you is that you repent and be saved. It takes somebody to believe and pray. It takes uh, someone to face reality their own personal reality that they're not saved. I don't care what your place is right here in this room today. You may be a church member. Listen, I've known preachers that got saved. They were better preachers after they got saved by their own admission. You may be walked in here today and you're far from God you've ever been. Whosoever calls. Whosoever calls. It takes that confession of faith, regardless where you are, regardless who you are, regardless what you've done, regardless what you haven't done. Do you know Jesus? You've heard the word of God. The Bible says, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You have heard the truth today. So today, will you face reality and have faith? Faith.